True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates. The sun is about to come up as the man nears his grandmother's house. His hoodie is pulled up over his head, but he's not hiding from anything. In his gut, he knows that this is one of the last sunrises he'll probably see as a free man. The last 24 hours were the crescendo on his short, violent life. He wonders briefly how long it will take for them to find the bodies. How many survived? He's certain the youngest girl is dead. What he did to her, no human being could ever survive. As the memory tugs at the corners of his mind, he wonders if his father will be proud. This is True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht, and you're listening to episode 103, The Serial Crimes of Cameron Wilson. This episode is sponsored by CBS Justice. For more true crime this weekend, CBS Justice has an exclusive 90-minute CBS original on Sunday at 8pm called The Murder That's Changed Britain. And I had the chance to interview one of the key figures in the documentary, forensic psychologist Professor Paul Britton. It was a fascinating conversation about the most notorious miscarriage of justice in UK criminal history. So be sure to keep listening after this week's episode for some very insightful bonus content. And a huge thank you to CBS Justice for sponsoring this episode of True Crime South Africa. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to thank those that have supported the podcast through Patreon recently. A huge thank you goes out to Victoria Schmarkov, Lorraine Keats, Arden Boyson, Sam, Beckett, Becky Chele Lindicky, Love is Cake, Cindy, Anise Hildenhuis, Annika Grieve, Sarieta, Chad Paul, Bryony, Linda Nsuka, Kim Norton, and Alyssa Vicenti. For your support on Patreon. As a side note, looking at some of the usernames people put through when they subscribe to Patreon, I'm really surprised that no one has gone to the trouble of trying to get me to say some ridiculous name combination on the podcast. You know, like the ones we used to find hilarious when we were kids, and probably still do. See more butts and the like. I'm not saying anyone should do it, But I mean, if you're signing up to Patreon at the same time, I'll say see more butts. Anywho, Patreon subscribers get access to all of the existing Patreon-exclusive episodes on the platform, and you get a new one every month. You also get access to an ad-free version of every week's episode and bonus content as I produce it. I haven't come up with an intro that includes all the new stuff yet, But do remember that you can support the show and get a 10% discount from King Online by using the code TCSA10 at checkout. 
The case I'm covering in today's episode is a serial murder case. And not only is the offender one of the youngest convicted serial offenders, he's also probably one of the most terrifying. He was described by Dr. Gerard Labaskachny as one of the most dangerous serial offenders he'd ever seen, because this perpetrator would kill for absolutely no reason. He seemed to have no preferred victim profile, and his dark history really brings the nature versus nurture question to the forefront. Please also do stay tuned after the main episode section for added bonus content where I interview Professor Paul Britton, a highly experienced forensic psychologist in the UK, and we talk more about serial offenders. So let's get into episode 103, The Serial Crimes of Cameron Wilson. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counseling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. Although this offender would eventually be convicted of five murders, it would be his final murder victim that would be the main focus of his trial, and really, probably the reason he was eventually taken off the streets. So I'm going to work this episode backward just a little, and start with an 18-year-old young woman called Lakita Moore. Lakita had grown up and lived in an area in Cape Town where drugs and gangs were deeply ingrained in everyday life. Valhalla Park, like many areas on the Cape Flats, is a stark contrast between families just trying to live their lives and gangsters and drug dealers doing their best to make money and gain power in these areas. Ultimately, in most cases, the two cannot stay separate, and young men and women, as well as their parents, inevitably get sucked into both the world of drugs and substance abuse and gangsterism. Lakita lived with her father Charles and mother Shireen. Charles and Shireen had another daughter together, Mersha, and Charles had a third daughter from another relationship who didn't live in the home with the others. Charles Moore worked at a bakery six days a week and started work very early, often being collected before 5am. His wife, Shireen, Lakita's mom, was a homemaker, but she'd sadly been struggling with a substance use issue for many years. In 2016, Shireen was making progress, though. Lakita had been helping her mom to overcome her addiction to the drug tick, and Shireen had been clean for a few months, by September 2016. Lakita was very popular and had a very busy social life. She was outgoing and young and had a strong circle of friends in the neighborhood who she enjoyed going out with. Lakita was very close with her dad and would always let him know where she was going and what time she would be home. On Saturday the 10th of September 2016, Lakita planned to attend a karaoke party at Valhalla Park Civic Center that night. Around 5 p.m., she spoke to her dad at home and asked him if he had any pocket money for her. 
Charles told his daughter that he only had 20 rand on him, but if she would go to the shop and buy him a pack of cigarettes for 10 rand, she could take the change. Likita did this, and around 8pm, she came back home, gave her dad his cigarettes, gave him a kiss on the cheek, and told him she'd be home a bit later. Charles smiled at his daughter as she left the house, and soon, knowing he had to get up early for work the next morning, he drifted off to sleep. Charles Moore was picked up for work at 5am on Sunday the 11th of September. He'd been at work for just over two hours, when just after 7am, his cell phone rang. The caller was a lifelong friend of the Moore family, and the man uttered just one sentence to him. Your child is lying near 8th Avenue. Charles was confused. 8th Avenue was the name of an informal settlement that bordered Valhalla Park. He tried to get clarification about exactly what the situation was, but his friend would say only that. Charles admits that when he asked his boss if he could go home that morning, he was a little irritated. He'd assumed that Lakita had fainted and was just in that area disorientated. She wasn't a huge drinker, but his mind did consider that maybe she'd had too much to drink the night before, and that's what the situation was. As he travelled home, he couldn't fathom why his wife couldn't just go and see to the girl while he continued working, but no one would say anything more. Charles first went to his house, but found it empty. He would later find his wife at the core of a crowd of neighbours that had formed at the scene that was about to change his life forever. That morning, a man who'd taken a shortcut through an open field that formed a border between Valhalla Park and the informal settlement called 8th Avenue had found the terribly mutilated body of a young woman. It would not take long for a neighbour to identify the girl as 18-year-old Likita Moore. That was when her father was called. I will warn you that the injuries to Likita are horrific, so please skip ahead about 30 seconds if you'd prefer not to hear this. When Likita Moore was found, she'd been deceased for a few hours. The young woman had been stabbed at least 98 times. In addition to this, her murderer had mutilated both her breasts and her genitals, with a portion of the external structure of her genitals having been cut away during the mutilation. She had also been raped. Charles would later explain how this moment had been the most defining in his life, for both him and his entire family. When he looks back, he can clearly see the distinction between who they were as a family before Lakita's murder and after. I cannot even comprehend what it must do to a father to see his child the way Lakita's killer left her. Her body completely devastated. And although the initial news articles gave nothing away in terms of who the perpetrator could be, 
and quoted residents' concerns about holes in the fence that separated their neighbourhood from the informal settlement as a concern. It's clear that as soon as police began speaking with Lakita's family, all attention moved in one direction. Lakita's sister, Mersha, was one of the first people to speak with investigating officers. The traumatised young woman had been with her sister at the karaoke evening the night before, but only up until a point. She told officers that she and Lakita had been enjoying themselves at the karaoke evening when a young man they knew had arrived. The man was the cousin of Mersha's boyfriend, and he'd been visiting their home in the weeks prior to see Lakita. They weren't dating, Mersha said, but she knew that her sister had kissed him, and he'd indicated that he wanted more. Mersha told the officers that she was aware that the man had been trying to control Lakita's movements in the days before her murder. She said he'd arrived at their home the afternoon before Lakita was killed. He'd had no shirt on and was very drunk. He'd argued with Lakita and threatened to hit her with a shambok. That day, he told her that he didn't want her going to the karaoke evening. Lakita told him that she wasn't his girlfriend and he couldn't tell her what to do. She, of course, had still gone to the karaoke evening, but Mersha said that the man had arrived there. He'd grabbed her sister by the neck and pulled her outside. She'd followed. He told her that they were going to get some box wine near 8th Avenue, and Lakita asked Mersha to come with. Things had seemed to calm down by that time, Mersha said, so she told her sister that she was tired and she preferred to go home. That was the last time she'd seen Lakita alive. Police now knew that the man who'd last been seen with Lakita Moore, and who that, according to Mersha, had been violent with her and threatened her in the days before her murder, was very likely their suspect. Mersha gave police his name, Cameron Wilson. When police officers work in areas in which gangs operate, they have no choice but to get to know the key players. With so many violent and drug-related crimes being linked to gangs, it's like knowing the ingredients to a recipe beforehand and then just taste-testing to figure out which one's added to the dish on that occasion. Although Lakita's murder seemed not to be gang-related, and from her injuries there seemed to be a deeply sexual or other personal motive, when the investigating officers heard the surname Wilson, they already knew who they were about to be confronted with. They'd arrested another Wilson, not long before that. Cameron Wilson's father, Abraham, was a prominent member of the 28th number gang, and he was about to stand trial for three murders. The man's 20-year-old son was no angel either, and police knew where they would find him, because Cameron Wilson was, at that point, out on bail. A year before Lakita Moore's body was found, mutilated and broken in that field in Valhalla Park, two other girls experienced the most horrific night of their lives, and for one of those girls, 
It was her last. 16-year-old Stacy Lee Mahali and her friend Abigail met Cameron Wilson and a 13-year-old friend of his when Abigail was visiting Stacy's house in March 2015. The girls had been walking in the area when Abigail says Cameron and the other boy had approached them and forced them to accompany him. What followed was a night of terror. Cameron and his minor accomplice had taken the girls to a nearby isolated spot where Cameron had raped them. He had then stabbed both girls, placed a car tire around the neck of each, and set the tires alight. This action is referred to as necklacing, and is commonly seen in vigilante murder cases. It was also very common in the apartheid era, when people who were believed to be collaborating with the apartheid governments were necklaced to send a message to others. Abigail said that the two boys had fled, and she'd pretended to be dead, and as soon as they were gone, she pushed the burning tire off her body and was able to flee to safety. For 16-year-old Stacy, though, it was too late. She died of her injuries at the scene. Although Abigail had not known Cameron's name at the time of the crime, she was able to identify him in a lineup, and she'd seen him around the area. Cameron was arrested in 2015 and charged with two counts of rape, one count of murder, and one of attempted murder. He was 19 years old at the time, and despite being charged with some seriously heinous crimes and a surviving victim identifying him, Cameron was inexplicably granted bail. Now, it's difficult to know exactly why this happened, and I'm hesitant to say that it was simply a poor decision by the magistrates, or even that Cameron's father's position held some sway because I honestly don't know what kind of evidence they had against the young man at that point, and that's a big part of what the magistrate has to use to decide whether to grant bail or not. Yes, there was a surviving victim, but at that point it would have been a he said, she said, and Cameron was saying that his 13-year-old accomplice had been the perpetrator, and he'd just been an unwitting witness. It's possible that DNA was also still being tested at this time. There are many possibilities. But the fact was, Cameron Wilson did get bail while he was awaiting trial. And by September 2016, almost a year and a half after Stacey Mohali was murdered and Abigail was so viciously attacked, his trial for those crimes had still not started. As a result, he was still out in the community. Stacey Mahali was murdered in an area called Hines Park, which is about 30 minutes from Valhalla Park. Cameron lived there at the time with his mother. When he was granted bail, perhaps because of his father's gang connections, the magistrate ruled he had to live elsewhere while he awaited trial, and his grandmother, who lived a few streets away from the Moors in Valhalla Park, had agreed to take the young man in. After police received the information about Cameron Wilson from Mercia, they set about getting an arrest warrant. 
In the meantime, though, just the day after Likita's body was found, Valhalla Park residents were in for yet another shock. Just a few hundred meters from where Likita Moore's body was found, police found another body. 20-year-old Xavier Bester had been shot to death. The young man lived with his mother close to the 8th Avenue area, and it was soon revealed that he had links to both Cameron Wilson and Lakita Moore. There were murmurs in the community that Xavier had been Lakita's boyfriend, but this was disputed by all who knew the young woman. She had known Xavier, though, and it would soon emerge that Xavier had also been at the karaoke evening that night. In fact, once Cameron Wilson was arrested, he would further reinforce the link between him and Xavier and Lakita, and deepen the mystery around Lakita and Xavier's murders. Xavier Bester's gunshot wounds had not been self-inflicted. He had sustained gunshots from another individual. When Cameron was arrested, his mother insisted that the boy had been home on the night of Lakita's murder. She said he'd been having a bra with friends. And the next morning, when the news of Lakita's body being found had trickled through the community, he'd been just as horrified as she was. Mersha Moore insisted, though, that Cameron had been at the karaoke party that night, and the young man himself would eventually prove his mother a liar by admitting that he had been there that night. And so had Xavier Bester. Although he initially denied any involvement, Cameron Wilson would later admit to having been with Lakita Moore on the night of her murder, but he claimed he had not killed her. He said that Xavier Bester had killed Lakita, and he tried to stop him by wrestling with him, but when Xavier had got the upper hand and he realized that Lakita was beyond help, he'd run home because he was afraid. He had no idea, he said, who'd shot Xavier Bester, or why. Lakita's blood was found on Cameron's clothing. He claimed that it must have transferred onto him from Bester's clothes when he'd wrestled with him. No mention was ever made in the media of whether Bester's clothes indeed showed any signs of Lakita's blood. I would think that Cameron's defense attorney would have used this if her blood had been on the man, though, and that was never raised as a point. For Cameron Wilson, though, his arrest for Lakita Moore's murder just opened a giant can of worms. By the time December 2016 rolled around and Cameron was attempting to apply for bail, the states had even more ammunition against the young man. They announced that they would be joining the two cases he was already charged with, the rape and murder of Stacey Mahali and the rape and attempted murder of her friend Abigail, as well as the rape and murder of Lakita Moore. But that was not all. Additional charges were being added. Among them, another four cases of attempted murder, another case of rape, and another three murders. In two years from the age of 17, it seemed that Cameron Wilson had been on a reign of terror in the Cape Flats. In October 2014, 
Alfonso van Royen was stabbed to death during an altercation with a man who was later alleged to be Cameron Wilson. Although there were several witnesses to the murder, most would only come forward once Wilson was in custody for Lakita's murder, and they said they'd been afraid of both Cameron and his father. It would then emerge that they'd had very good reason to be afraid of coming forward, because just three days after Alfonso van Royen was murdered, Toya Stober, a man who had witnessed the murder of Alfonso, was also murdered. Toya and his wife ran a shop from their home, and on the day of his death, Cameron Wilson and another man had come into the shop. Toya had recognised him and told him to leave. The three men got into a verbal altercation outside the store, and Cameron and his friend had fled on foot. Toya had followed them in his car, presumably to figure out where they lived so he could call police. Toya's wife watched him race off, and within a few minutes, she received a call from a neighbour down the road, telling her that her husband had been shot and was dead. Witnesses would identify the man who'd shot at Toya's vehicle as Cameron Wilson. One of the major mysteries of this case for me is how Cameron Wilson managed to remain on the run after having been accused of even just these first two crimes. I do understand that witnesses were afraid, but surely, with a deep enough investigation, someone had to be able to put the pieces together. Or perhaps the pieces were being kept apart on purpose, and the blind eye was being turned. If that was the case, Cameron Wilson was left on the streets to continue to kill, because the next murder charge that would be added to his charge sheet dated back to Christmas of 2014, just two months after he'd killed Alfonso van Royen and Toya Stober. On that day, Ernest Erasmus had been visiting a tavern in Hines Park with his girlfriend. They had a few drinks and purchased a small amount of dacha before heading home. His girlfriend said that when they'd arrived home, they realised they'd dropped the banki of Dacha somewhere along the road, so they retraced their steps back to the tavern and managed to locate it. Before they could turn back home, though, they encountered Cameron Wilson. The young man rode up on his bicycle and started to harass Ernest. He demanded money from the man, but Ernest said he didn't have anything. Without another word, Cameron Wilson reached into the back of his pants, pulled out a screwdriver, and plunged it into Ernest's neck. The man bled to death on the scene. It seems clear that by this point, Cameron Wilson felt untouchable. And maybe he was. Up until then, he'd been committing what could be passed off as gang crimes or common robberies gone wrong. All his victims had been male, and they weren't the sorts of crimes that would get headlines, or that police would be under any particular pressure to solve. Perhaps emboldened by this, in March 2015, he escalated, attacking and killing Stacey Mahali and almost killing her friend Abigail. Before he could be arrested for that crime, it emerged he'd committed 
another two. In April 2015, Cameron Wilson raped and attempted to kill Dawny Davids. In that same month, he attempted to murder Cody Philander. He was then arrested for the murder of Stacey Mahali and promptly released on bail. The Davids and Philander crimes did only come to light after his arrest for Lakita's murder, though. And if you're still keeping up with all of this, then I'm about to make that even more difficult. Because before we can complete the charge sheet this 20-year-old man would eventually face, we have to go back to the night Likita Moore was murdered. Because her case was not the only one he was accused of that night. After Cameron Wilson's arrest, two women came forward to say that they too had been attacked by the man on the night of the 10th of September 2016 and the early morning hours of the following day. At 1am on the 11th of September, Nicole McEwen went with a friend to a house known for drug sale in the Valhalla Park area. While her friend went inside to purchase drugs, she waited outside. She says that she was approached by Cameron Wilson and another man. Cameron asked for a lighter, and when she said she didn't have one, he pulled out a knife and stabbed her. Nicole collapsed, and thankfully at that moment, her friend had exited the house and Cameron and the other man had fled. The attempted murder of Nicole McEwen was added to the charge sheet. Shortly afterwards, another woman, Rosalind Lackey, was standing in the street outside her home when she was attacked and stabbed by two men, one of which she identified as Cameron Wilson, and the other, very interestingly, who she said held her hands while Cameron stabbed her, she identified as Xavier Bester. A charge of attempted murder was added to Cameron's charge sheet for this crime as well. By the time he was ready to stand trial in 2017, 20-year-old Cameron Wilson was facing 15 charges, including murder, attempted murder, conspiracy to commit crime, rape, possession of an illegal firearm and ammunition, and assault with intent to commit grievous bodily harm. In March 2017, Cameron pleaded not guilty to all the charges against him. In his plea explanation, he claimed that Xavier Bester had been responsible for the murder of Lakita Moore, as well as the two other attempted murders that night, and the 13-year-old, whose identity was withheld because he was a minor, was responsible for the murder of Stacey Mahali and the attack on her friend. He claimed not to have any knowledge of any of the other crimes he was accused of. As the trial got underway, it became clear that Cameron either did not really have a care in the world about being accused of being a serial murderer, or he was quite enjoying the attention. Maybe a bit of both. The young man spent his time in the dock laughing, smiling and waving at the crowd. When he wasn't doing that, he was slouched down in the dock as though he may drift off to sleep at any time. For each of the murders, the forensic pathologist associated with the case testified. 
the injuries to Stacey Lee Mahali and Lakita Moore were so horrific that the gallery gasped as they were detailed. Police officers testified as to how difficult it had been to get people to testify against Cameron and lay charges against him. When some of the rape survivors took the stand, Cameron smiled at them and laughed as they gave their evidence. During the officer's testimony, it was revealed that there were other rape and assault or attempted murder cases that could not be added to the charge sheet because the victims were simply too terrified to participate in proceedings. Toya Stober's son, Walid, testified that he'd been walking up the street the day that his father was shot, and he'd witnessed two men shooting at his father's vehicle. At the time, he hadn't known who they were, but during his testimony, he pointed out Cameron Wilson as one of the shooters. An unlicensed firearm was found in Cameron's home when he was arrested, but there was no evidence led as to whether the bullets from the Stober scene had been matched to that gun. Honestly, even if they hadn't, I wouldn't have thought that strange. Cameron Wilson was the son of a very experienced criminal. He would have known well enough not to use the same firearm in multiple crimes. Cody Philander also took the stand to testify about the day he was stabbed in the chest by Cameron Wilson. He said that he and a friend had been standing on the street when Wilson had approached them. The man had wanted to look in Cody's friend's backpack, and Cody had refused. Wilson had slapped him and then stuck a knife in his chest before walking away like nothing had happened. Dawny David's testimony was harrowing as she explained how Wilson had dragged her away from a field where she'd been walking, raped and stabbed her. DNA found on David's underwear was conclusively linked to Cameron Wilson, but the man claimed that he and David's had had consensual sex. Stacey Lee Mahali's friend Abigail also testified about the horrific events that had led to the necklacing death of her friend. She denied Cameron's claims that his 13-year-old accomplice had been the main perpetrator that night and said that Cameron had been the one who'd done everything while the 13-year-old stood back. By June of 2017, closing arguments were delivered and Judge Chantal Fortain was ready to deliver her judgments by the end of that month. In a detailed two-day judgment that left very little room for possible appeals, Judge Fortain found Cameron Wilson guilty of 13 of the 15 charges against him. He was found guilty of all the murders he was charged with and with the attempted murders. In aggravation of sentence, the prosecution would present evidence from Hayden Nibs, a psychologist with the investigative psychology unit at the time, who said that Wilson could be classed as a serial murderer and that he also had significant psychopathic traits which would make it highly unlikely that he could be fully rehabilitated. The defense asked the court to consider that Wilson had come from a home where gangsterism was the norm and that his father was also a very violent man 
who'd since been convicted of the three murders he'd been accused of too. Judge Fortain pointed out that during the trial, Wilson's mother had claimed the boy came from a very stable and loving home and that he'd never been exposed to any negative influence from his father. In August 2017, Cameron Wilson was handed down four life sentences, plus an additional 71 years for his crimes. He will become eligible for parole after having served 25 years, which will be in 2041. He will be just 45 years old at that time. As the sentence was handed down, Cameron Wilson laughed and applauded the judge. When the gallery cheered, he snidely remarked, At least I'm still alive. Although the families were happy with the sentences, it soon became clear that no matter how long Cameron stayed behind bars, the impact of his crimes on the lives of so many people would never be resolved. Likita's father told the producers of the television program Opsia Sespoor that both his wife and daughter had spiralled after Likita's death. In the wake of the vicious murder, Shireen had not been able to sustain her sobriety and she'd fallen back into the grip of addiction. Charles Moore shares that he feels she is far worse now than she's ever been and he's certain she's lost her grip on reality. Sadly, he also shared that Mercia struggled so significantly with the loss of her sister and the guilt she felt for not staying with her that night that she too fell into the grips of a hard drug habit. I could not help but see one glaring gap in this case, and that is the murder of Xavier Bester. We know from the two surviving victims from that night that Xavier Bester was with Cameron Wilson during the attacks on them. Both of those victims allege that Xavier did not stab them, but one says he did hold her still while Cameron stabbed her. Lakita Moore was murdered around midnight on the 10th of September. The two other crimes happened soon after that, and we know that Cameron Wilson returned home as the sun was coming up on the 11th. But Xavier Bester did not return home, and as far as I'm concerned, there's a very good chance that Cameron Wilson was the reason for that. It's clear that Wilson had no problem getting rid of witnesses, if we look at the murder of Toya Stober. Is it possible that Xavier Bester was with Cameron when he killed Lakita, continued on with him for the rest of the night's violent spree, and then, when Cameron was finished, he decided that Xavier Bester was too much of a liability to keep around. He'd had to have known that Lakita's murder was going to create chaos in the ensuing hours, and Xavier Bester certainly didn't seem like the same level of criminal that Cameron was. If police had caught up with him, there was a very good chance he would have confessed and turned state witness. And I'm sure police suspected this as well. After all, it would have been a really strange coincidence for Bester to have spent the entire night marauding with a violent criminal and then on his way home just happened to walk into a hail of bullets. 
Perhaps there wasn't enough evidence to add this murder to the sheet too, but I don't think there's much doubt that Wilson was a darn good suspect for it. As I mentioned in the introduction to this episode, Dr. Gerard Labaskachny described Cameron Wilson as one of the most dangerous serial offenders he'd ever come across. And I think I can see why he would say that. Wilson is a combination of two of the most terrifying types of criminals. A depraved sexual offender, driven by a lust for power and control, and a cold, calculated gangster, his father's son. I don't know if Cameron has any siblings, and I do still think that even if he does, there's a good chance some of them will be nothing like their father and brother, but this case really does highlight the importance of both nature and nurture. It wasn't just the genes that Cameron was born into, but also growing up around a man who'd clearly taught his son that murder was just another pastime. Was Cameron Wilson always going to become a serial killer? Maybe. But I think the level of killer he became and how soon it happened in his life was definitely influenced by his father. His mother was also very clearly willing to blatantly lie to give him an alibi. She did it for almost all the crimes he was accused of until she was tripped up in court and proven to be lying. And I guess for her too, that had become learned behavior. I can only imagine that her entire married life had been made up of false alibis and dodging justice. And so she would form the missing piece in the development of Cameron, the killer, the enabler. Just as to a certain extent our own legal and justice system enabled him for too long. It seems terribly sad to lock up a 20-year-old man and say he should never have any hope of seeing the outside of a prison cell. But in Cameron Wilson's case, I can see no other safe alternative. When he entered the awaiting trial section of prison after being arrested for Stacey Mahali's murder, he officially joined the 28s and received the tattoo. Now he is being molded and trained by some of the worst killers the Western Cape has to offer. This boy, really, because he's barely a man, with psychopathic tendencies so significant psychologists don't see much hope of rehabilitation, is being turned into an even deadlier, an even colder killing machine behind bars. I suspect that we should all really hope that in 2041, when babies that are being born right now are going to be close to Lakita Moore's age when she was murdered, Cameron Wilson does not step a foot outside of that prison cell. If we look at what went in, I can't even fathom what might come out. The trail of destruction left behind by this man is so vast and so deep that it's difficult to even fathom. He killed five, maybe six, probably more, 
but even those who survived will never, ever be the same. And those are just the ones we know about. Their families, their children, parents are lost and broken. Charles Moore told the producers of Opsia Sespoor that his wife has fallen so deeply into psychotic-type behavior formed around her deep grief and coddled in her drug-addled mind that she regularly goes to the spot where Lakita's body was found, strips down to her bra and panties, and lies on her back for hours. Try as they might, no one can convince her to come inside. Neighbors don't stare anymore. They avert their eyes from her body and simultaneously from her pain. Because that half-naked mother, with tears slowly and silently coursing their way down her cheeks, lying on her back in the dirt, staring sightlessly into the sky, is the representation of a pain they've yet to endure and one they'd rather never understand. Alfonso van Royen, Toya Stober, Ernest Erasmus, Stacey Lee Mahali, and Lakita Moore. Breast gently. As mentioned in the beginning of the episode, I've got some very special bonus content for you today. Courtesy of CBS Justice. I had the pleasure of interviewing Professor Paul Britton. Professor Britton is considered to be the pioneer of criminal profiling in the UK. He's an expert criminal profiler, having spent more than 20 years working as a consultant, clinical and and forensic psychologist, as well as being the former head of the Regional Forensic Psychology Service for Trent. He previously advised the Home Office and Association of Chief Police Officers Crime Committee on Offender Profiling and currently teaches clinical and forensic psychology at Birmingham City University. I could have picked Professor Britton's brain for days on end about many different cases, but the topic of our discussion for this interview was the CBS original documentary he's a part of called The Murder That Changed Britain. The documentary is truly incredible, and as far as I'm concerned, the learnings from it should really be applied to all legal systems around the world. The crux of the documentary is the investigation of a murder that happened in the UK in the early 90s. Rachel Nicole was walking on Wimbledon Common with her two-year-old son when she was sexually assaulted and stabbed 49 times. She died from her injuries And coincidentally, you would have heard me mention this case in the interview I did with Dr. Richard Shepard, the British forensic pathologist who did the autopsy on another victim that would eventually be linked to Rachel's murder. That linkage, however, would only come after a huge amount of bungling from the British police, which led to the entrapment, arrest and charging of an innocent man in relation to Rachel's murder. Professor Britton was unwittingly drawn into this bungled investigation 
and for the first time in the CBS documentary, he tells the truth behind this miscarriage of justice, which for decades has been framed as his responsibility. The documentary is absolutely fascinating, and I highly recommend it. So without further ado, let's get into my interview with Professor Paul Britton. You've had an incredibly long and esteemed career in various roles as a forensic psychologist, and you're perhaps uniquely placed to have observed how the understanding of psychologically motivated crimes has changed over the years. What are some of the major changes you've seen in terms of how law enforcement, and perhaps the public, view such crimes and offenders now as opposed to in the 1980s, when you were just introducing criminal profiling to the United Kingdom? That's an interesting question. Um, when I first was asked to help the police, at, at that stage, I, it, it was necessary to help them to understand the psychological basis of motivation of these sorts of perpetrators, of the victims as well. And an important part of helping them to move forward was putting that in very plain language and almost holding hands through interview processes. Now, I was fortunate enough to be asked to go to the police staff college at Browns Hill um, from time to time, and that education has now seeped in. So we're now in a position where psychological insight is going into the police service, into the detective service, really from the beginning. And I think that's important. As far as the general public are concerned, I think it's slightly different. I think that from the contact I have had, very often people do want to understand what it is that's happened. And there is a change that I think is important. In the beginning, the focus was very much on the perpetrator, understanding and catching the perpetrator. Now, in the way that I work, understanding the perpetrator begins with understanding the victim, knowing the victim, understanding the, why was this victim, if it's a woman, why was she chosen? What made her special to this perpetrator? And I think it's the focus on the victim now that has become so much more important over the years with the public. And I think that is connected with, I'm not saying it's a part of why it happened, but it's certainly part of the growth of seeing women as more than just straw figures. I, I was fortunate enough years ago to, to, to have an award. And I remember saying on stage to the assembled body of writers and all of the rest of it, please don't show your victims as straw people. Because so very often, they were simply the vehicle for us to meet this terrible offender. And for me, the world goes the other way around. I have to know, and the people are now much more concerned with understanding the victim. So very often, it's a lady, a woman of uh, one age or another. And I think the more you come to know them, the easier the more important it is not just to know the offender, but to set the motivational dry running that helps you to locate and take them into custody. I don't think I need to tell you that my brain started doing backflips as Professor Britton was answering this question and bringing across this concept of not having victims and particularly women 
seen as straw people or the straw man. This term is often used in a legal sense, but it's also used in other contexts, and it basically means an empty persona that's created for no other reason than to hold space or to allow the movement of other parts of a story. And I think for a long time in the press and the true crime content creation community, this is exactly what victims were. They were simply just present or mentioned in order to introduce the person the media or creator really wanted to talk about, the perpetrator. I do think this is changing, and I mentioned to Professor Britton that True Crime South Africa is is victim-focused, and he was very pleased about that. Now, back to the interview. Firstly, I want to say that I think The Murder That Changed Britain is an incredibly important documentary, not just to the UK, but across the world. The concept of profiling is, of course, an important feature in the documentary. Could you maybe give listeners an idea of what a criminal profile is and how it should be used as a tool? Well, for me, um, remember, my origins are as a clinician. So I'm a National Health Service clinical psychologist by origin. And before that, I'm I'm a a psychologist trained in the university system. So it begins with the police saying, can you help us with this murder? We're stuck. And so I come then as a clinician to look at what's happened. And there were five key questions for me. Questions are simple. Answers, not so. First question was, what has happened? It sounds very easy. The problem is that people jump to the wrong conclusions early on. And so they believe that A has happened, that it's a a murder where someone was let in. But in fact, it wasn't. It turns out to have been a true murder, but that the person gained entry in another method. And that's important. Then I want to know how. How was it done? What's the method? And in fine detail, and this again, when I teach psychologists, in this area, I have to tell them you must be brave because so often you have to go against the tide. I remember sitting in a room of experts. Uh, I was the only psychologist. And the, 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 the opinion was that there were two offenders who had carried out this terrible assault and murder of a, a young girl. And when I went, I could not see two. I could only find evidence for one and a local one at that, completely running against all the other view. Now, the pressure was to think, stay quiet, you'll pick it up as you go along. But you can't do that. So you have to put forward what you've seen, what your professional opinion is. Remember, you may have a killer out there who's going to come again. And if you don't do your job properly, then it'll continue. The senior investigating officer took the view, all right, Everyone, please go back to the beginning. Everyone do their work all over again. We'll meet again in a few days and see where we are. Now, when we came back, it turned out that each of the other areas of specialist opinion had changed their view. One of the most important markers of the two killer factor was a bite mark that was left on this poor young woman's breast. And the original view was, The killer has to be kneeling beside her to have done this. And then the other part was there have to be two killers because the injury that happened to her 
her sexual areas couldn't have been done at the same time as the injuries to her throat. So you have to have two. But when people went back, what was found was actually the bite mark was 180 degrees the other way up and that the injuries to the poor girl's body could have been done by one person at more or less the same time. And that changed everything. And that meant that the psychological analysis became key. And one of the important parts was you're looking at somebody local. And that meant they could focus very narrowly. And as a consequence, they were able to arrest the offender very quickly. You mention in the documentary that profiles should be primarily used as an exclusionary tool. Would you say that using it to specifically include a suspect is a dangerous practice? One of the areas that has caused me extra effort is helping investigators to distinguish between those two two factors. And the case that you're talking about, I think, is in the documentary, where at the beginning, the whole drive was to eliminate as well as to implicate. So you had to approach both even-handedly. It's easy for people to invest their emotion, their thinking, in the wrong end of it, and you have to help them to come back. And that's been a big part of what I have done. Now, understand why. The reason why is because you're looking at men and women who are investigating, who have two factors. One is they're not specialists in this area, but the second is they really do want to solve this. If they latch early onto what they think is the offender, it's so difficult to help them to keep looking at other possibilities, but mostly they do. When I interview individuals involved in forensic work from other countries, I always enjoy understanding the difference between how we work here and how they work, and which version is is perhaps better. I think we very much like to think that our systems here in South Africa are rudimentary and not world-class but I don't always think that's the case. In South Africa, of course, someone like Professor Britton would be part of the police service. He would be the rough equivalent of what Dr. Gerard Labaskakni did when he was in the SAPS. And we don't use external consultants very much here. So I asked Professor Britton to confirm that in the UK, psychologists such as him would work as consultants to law enforcement, and he was not directly employed within the ranks of the police. I also wondered whether he thought that this was best practice, considering it might be the very reason he was seen by the police as a safe bet to shift blame onto in the Rachel Nickel case. Or is it more important to maintain that level of distance and separation that a consultant space brings? That's correct. I'm not a policeman. I'm a psychologist. Remember, in the early days, um, I worked as a a clinician, and it's only later that I was asked to move into the forensic service, which I came to manage in the end. But even in the forensic service, it was fully in the National Health Service, not the police. We've moved forward since then. Um, it, It was the case that the people giving advice tended, like me, to be from outside. I was asked by the British Home Office if I would review psychological profiling and its possible use in the police service here. And one of my uh, recommendations was that we should have a register 
of all people who offered this service and each case should be followed through and evaluated so that we could, if you like, know which tracks, which people were best on. And that's been moved way forward now. And we have uh, policing degrees and the people who go on to them are very often, not always, very often psychologists. And so we have forensic psychology literally within policing. And I'm, I'm fortunate enough to know a number of psychologists who head policing units in the UK. So the point you're making is really happening. And one of the factors, I don't know if you've ever heard of Catchem. I was privileged to be the, the joint designer of the Catchem database. So a long time ago, a man called Duncan Bailey, Detective Chief Superintendent, he was the head of CID in Derbyshire. He had been tasked by his uh, police superiors, ACPO, as they were then called, to look at this area and see if they couldn't bring something out of it. And I'd worked with Duncan on a number of offences. And Duncan came to me and said, can we do this together? And OK, we did. But the point I'm making is that out of this came the Catch and Database. And if I look at all of the work I've done over the years in forensic areas, I think Catchem is probably the most important piece. It's not glamorous. It, that there's no, oh, you caught this one or you caught that one. But the Catchem database and the principles have been used now throughout policing to bring so many crimes to a proper conclusion. And I think it's a really useful tool. Catchem stands for Centralised Analytical Team Collating Homicide Expertise Management. It's a database containing details of, of the murders of women and girls under 21 years and boys under 17 years to assist investigators and profilers. Now, if you've listened to even a few serial offender episodes, you'll understand why this is so vital. And it really is a phenomenal achievement from Professor Britton. Back to the interview. I thought that it was really important that you pointed out that when you drew up your profile, you weren't doing so to match it to any given suspects, including Colin Stagg, but rather it was a picture of an unknown subject who'd killed Rachel Nicole, whomever that person may be. Do you think that there's a deep enough understanding of this distinct difference when people and maybe even the police think about criminal profiles as a tool? I think that the per the point you're making is really important. Um, it it's perfectly clear and straightforward from my perspective, but it is key to helping people to understand it in the world of investigation. I can think of so many cases. Um, obviously, the one that dealt with um, Napa and Mr. Stag, and also the kidnappings, the abductions of Michael Sands and others, where. The focus has to be on the mind and the functioning of the perpetrator. And everything that I can say is about that person. And then one of the, the issues I, I suspect is that because that turns out to be such a good fit for a number of people, say two, sometimes the investigator might look at the wrong one. And part of my role is to pull people back and to say no let's let's look a little more carefully you haven't got this or you haven't got that and even if you had and this is something that 
sometimes takes some some grasping. If you have a person who 100% is a match for a psychological profile, even down to the sexual fantasies that you describe, that doesn't make them guilty. That's a step along the way. That's a reason not to exclude, but it doesn't mean this is the person. You still need the evidence that the court would want, that the Crown Prosecution Service needs to move forward. And helping folks to hang on to that can sometimes be a, be a task. I know from working with other psychologists who do forensic work that using a strong set of both professional and personal ethics as a guide for their work is vitally important. Do you feel like the Rachel Nicole case was one of the most testing of your ethics in your career, despite you having done everything you could at the time to get the best result possible? There were problems from a, a number of perspectives. The, the question that you've just put up is something that I asked right at the beginning. It's what about the ethics? What about the morality? Where are we going? And the opinion that the very strong opinion of the investigators was this has been looked at at the highest levels in the Metropolitan Police and the Crown Prosecution Service. It sits right at the top of the Attorney General's watch list. Please be reassured, all of these things are looked at. And even then, my view was, that's good. Second thing is, we can only go forward involving me if we build in these very specific safeguards. So the question you're asking, absolutely important. If you're, I'm not sure if you're free to step away just from the Rachel Nikel killing and look at the other killings that Napa we know is involved with. If I go back to the green chain rapes, which again was the same offender, I have one regret in that case. Um, I went through the psychological analysis, I went across it all, uh, and I presented my findings to the investigating team. It's a different team, and they simply chose to ignore it. Mm. Now, I, I knew as a psychologist that what I told them was accurate, and if only they did, as I had suggested, they would take the person into custody. And if I had one thing I could do again, it would be I would stand and bang on the door until they did it. It, it goes back to your earlier point. I'm not a policeman. Mm. I'm an external. I'm a psychologist. I can only say you've asked me to do this. This is what I'm offering. Please take it seriously. I think there are a few important points this documentary raises. And the first is how dangerous it can be to pathologize someone's sexual fantasies if they're different from your own or from what's considered to be the norm. Really, I think this case showed that this can not only cause great shame for the individual, which is unnecessary, but can, as in Colin Stagg's case, have a life-changing impact. Well, again, I, I think each of the points that you make are significant. I think the important thing to remain, remember here is that the sexual uh, psychological fantasies that we were talking about, although they are not unique, they are relatively uncommon. And so in terms of investigating, if you have someone who is producing this range of material, then it's worth looking further at them. Remember, simply having those fantasies does not make them guilty. 
but it doesn't eliminate them. And if you have someone who has no interest whatsoever in those sorts of materials, and it's important to remember that the, the person being investigated, Mr. Stagg in this case, was the person who introduced those strands. That was a key requirement. The police were not allowed to introduce anything like that. They could only respond to it once it had been introduced. Mm. The mere fact it's introduced is not sufficient to convict anybody. Yeah. What it is, it's something that says, look a little closer. Another important point that I think was raised is critical thinking and accurate reporting in the media and among other content creators. Do you think, given that perhaps the media were not privy to all the information they needed, that they could have done anything different in how they covered Rachel Nicole's case? Yes, I'm sure that they could. Um, there were so many factors that I think drew attention, not the least was on the day at the time that this poor woman was killed on Wimbledon Common, the commissioner of the Metropolitan Police's wife happened to be on the common. And in a sense, that is something that excited the media. So that was one thing. She was a very photogenic young lady. I don't know if you're familiar with um, a children's programme called The Wombles. Well, the Wombles of Wimbledon Common, they, they were associated with Wimbledon Common. So it was something else. Now, if you look at the murders of Samantha and Jasmine Bissett, also by Napa, not very far apart in terms of time, also looked at by me, also drawn to the police's attention for the same reason, those investigating officers could not get media attention to the case. You had a mother absolutely butchered in her own house, absolutely dreadful. The police photographer who had to go to the scene of the crime never came back to work after having looked at her. You had her little tiny child terribly digitally raped and murdered and dressed up to look as though she's asleep. A most awful killing. And yet the police could not get media attention. So the point that you're making is so accurate. And why was that? Well, as near as we can tell, one of the issues was that it had been suggested that the mother had some untoward habits, that she may have been going down a, a early stages of prostitution, but she wasn't. But that was enough. We have on the one hand this blonde-haired, blue-eyed, photogenic young lady, photographed. We've got her. We're not, we can't spare the time to look at these other things. So your point, I think, is really important. And this happens so often, even in missing person cases. The minute there's the suggestion that the person may have had a mental health issue or a substance use disorder, the public and press interest decreases dramatically. Professor Britton weighs in with, with an anecdote from his career that highlights this point. I was asked to look at the murder of a young woman in Leicestershire, and she had been left in a very particular way at the roadside. She was naked. She had been sexually assaulted. She had been uh, left in a, in a hedgerow. Anyway, I dealt with this. I was able to give the police advice about her. 
the advice was she had worked as a, a prostitute. And then I was able to say, but look, I have seen this before. I was able to explain that in my personal um, work, I had dealt with another three women who had exactly the same presentation in different parts of the country, some in the Midlands, some not quite. And that led to what's called Operation Enigma here. And out of that, I think 200 unresolved murders, mostly dealing with working girls, ladies working as prostitutes, were found. And the view was that at least two or more serial offenders had been working on them. But they didn't really come to attention because of their working lives. And that is so sad. We were able to catch the man who had done the four that, that I mentioned, but um, I don't know about the others. I wanted to really commend you for being brave enough to essentially stand up to the police service in this case and put forward your version of the story, because I think there's so much to be learned from what happened here, and we wouldn't have known that if you hadn't come forward. If there's one lesson to be learned by law enforcement and perhaps other criminal profilers from this case, what would you think that should be? Well, there are several really, but I suppose if there was just a one, I would be wanting to help management of crime, management of investigators to be much, much more intelligently and persistently driven. Mm. Um, this, this case falls down not because of the over-enthusiasm of investigators, really. The issue is that they weren't properly managed. I, I've worked on all sorts of cases over the years, and one of the things that really makes a difference is where you have an officer in overall charge of all the investigations who makes sure that each of the teams are doing their job properly, and I'm afraid that this seems to have got away from that. And that is my interview with Professor Paul Britton. So don't miss the CBS Justice original true crime special, The Murder That Changed Britain, on Sunday night, the 29th of January at 8pm on DSTV Channel 170, and also available on Catch Up. Thank you for listening to episode 103. The Serial Crimes of Cameron Wilson, with a bonus interview with Professor Paul Britton. If you'd like to hear more victim-focused true crime content, please subscribe to True Crime South Africa on the platform you're using to listen right now. If you're looking for something still related to real-life stories, but often with a more positive slant, you can check out my new podcast series, I Lived Through This. You can follow both podcasts on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, thank you for your support, and I'll chat to you soon. Mm -hmm.